Hi, I'm Maya Nowens. This is Sound Strategic, the podcast of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and I'm here with Antonio. Hi, I'm Antonio Sampaio. Following last week's podcast discussion on the military balance and great power competition, this, this week we're going to look at security threats that don't support the latest missile systems, tanks and navies. Rather, we will talk about the snakes, as our guest this week calls, the predominant foes of Western military forces in the post-9-11 era, that is, non-state armed groups. This is a timely discussion as the U.S. government has recently signed an agreement with the Taliban in Afghanistan, paving the way for the withdrawal of U.S. troops from the country after two decades of asymmetric war. And asymmetric war is precisely the expertise of our guest, David Kilcullen, Professor of International and Political Studies at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, and he's the author of a new book called The Dragons and the Snakes, How the Rest Learn to Fight the West. David, thanks for joining us. One of the interesting arguments you make is that not only groups such as insurgents and militias have learned to counter the West's superior military hardware, but that some state actors uh, have also become versed in using non-traditional tactics reminiscent of guerrilla warfare. So can you explain to us about that? Yeah, so I should start by saying that I really can't take credit for the expression the dragons and the snakes. This comes from James Woolsey, who was President Bill Clinton's CIA director. Mm -hmm. And when he was testifying in front of Congress in 1993, he said, we've slain a large dragon, talking about the Soviet Union, but now we find ourselves in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes, and in many ways the dragon was easier to keep track of. And this book that I, that's just come out is really it's a study of adversary adaptation since Woolsey said that in 1993. And I sort of argue that in 1991, just before Woolsey gave his testimony, in the Gulf War, the U.S. and its allies showed everybody how not to fight us. You know, if you go out in the open, straight lines, in daylight, in the desert, the result is going to be what happened to Saddam. It's going to be the, the highway of death. But then in invading Iraq in 2003, we showed everybody how to fight us, right? If you go amorphous, cell-based, hide in the population, get into urban environments where it's hard for us to target you, um, then uh, we will really struggle to get on top of you. And my argument is that in the 27 years or so since Woolsey gave that testimony, the Western military model, as we've understood it, has basically shown itself to have not failed exactly, but adversaries have adapted to it to the point where it's no, no longer working. And one of the things we see is state actors, for example, the Russians in Syria and in Ukraine, adopting techniques and organizational structures and methods from non-state actors. Simultaneously, we see state actors, the most obvious recent one being uh, Daesh, the Islamic State, adopting state-like techniques. You know, Daesh thought it was a state, it fought like a state, it had artillery and tanks and it held cities and it tried to be a relatively conventional nation state. Now, the destruction of Daesh and its territory are not the same thing, right? We've destroyed the territory controlled by Daesh but the organization is still very much alive and out there and adapting. And everybody, just as they did in the 1990s, is watching that, learning and changing. And I think the key lesson that I'm drawing out in the book is that we've got to rethink our military model going forward. 
Another issue that you've been writing about quite um, prominently is, and one that has influenced our research here at the IISS, is the issue of urban conflict. Mm. So um, do you think that um, since you, you wrote the book, uh, it's been a few years, uh, the, uh, about the urban guerrillas out mm. of the mountains, the coming age of the, the urban guerrilla, um, how 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 have the have the trends you described changed somehow? Is this trend that you identify and, and explore in this new book on the convergence in tactics between state and non-state actors? Does that influence the likelihood of conflict in urban areas? Yeah, and I think you know most people should be aware of the great work you guys are doing with your various case studies on cities in. Africa and the Middle East, um, uh, some cities that I also have worked on, and I think it's going to be a great series when, when it comes out. Um, yeah, so in Out of the Mountains, which I wrote in 2012, we were using the current data available from the UN Bureau of Economic and Social Affairs, who are people that do the projections of urbanization. And as those trends have played out, it's sort of clear that we called, or I called some things right and some things wrong. And the one obvious thing that we called right was, um, indeed, conflict has become increasingly urban. All the major conflicts that we've seen have focused heavily on urban and littoral, that is coastal areas. Uh, and we've seen some of the biggest battles, urban battles in history in the last five years. Uh, so that general trend of uh, urbanization of conflict was absolutely correct. One of the things that I got wrong, though, was uh, an emphasis on megacities, so cities over 10 million or um, that have a, um, a sort of size issue that puts them in the top 10 or 20 cities on the planet. Um, the data as it, as it existed in 2012 suggested that that was where we were going to see a lot of conflict. In fact, what we've seen is that it's rapidly growing small cities in the global south where we've had the most significant conflict. Um, I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with the town of Marawi in the Philippines, um, which, uh, you know, some of the media reporting will suggest that, a, you know, an ISIS organization attacked the city. Well, no, that's not right. A thousand ISIS guys captured and held a major city in the Philippines for five months, and the Philippine military had to destroy significant parts of that city in order to, um, to recapture it. And they're still rebuilding, you know. So, um, it, but it's a small city and it's the small cities that are unable to cope in some cases with the rapidity of growth and change where we're seeing most of this uh, conflict. So what was it about, um, can I ask, the former hypothesis that you held about the very large megacities that turned out to be wrong? What was the underlying reasoning for that hypothesis that didn't turn out to be true? Well, I think because the data in 2012-2013 suggested that the fastest growth was going to be in megacities. Mm -hmm. And by the time the, in every, the UN does an update every year, by the time a few of those updates came out, it became pretty clear that actually the fastest growth was going to be in small or medium-sized cities, so 100 to 500,000 people. Uh, and that's a, you know, just the data, underlying data shifted, so we had to go back and, uh, and relook at that. The other thing I'd say, though, I, I did mention connectivity and the role of electronic communications and looked at that in some detail in Out of the Mountains. In this book, I've emphasized that much more heavily because the pace of connectivity growth turned out to be really fast and more fast even than we predicted in 2012. And that has really influenced the way that non-state actors and states alike have been able to operate in the urban space, which is 
typically much more connected than rural environments. Yeah, and ever more so, of course. Um, so I study at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, um, China and Chinese uh, digital expansion, yeah, so through yeah. the digital Silk Road. And of course, a lot of these projects are taking place in uh, the global south yeah. um, for good reasons. But it's interesting, of course, that you bring out what the negative consequences of that might be going yeah. forward. And I think, you know, the uh, what's happening in Hong Kong over the past um, you know year and a half is an extraordinarily extraordinary illustration of how urban conflicts will occur in a hyper-connected environment um, among a very technologically literate population. And we've seen some extraordinarily interesting things develop in terms of crowdsourcing, um, decentralized communication systems, uh, what we call leaderless resistance. Uh, And these are techniques that I think the Chinese government and the Hong Kong government have really struggled to deal with, and uh, I think it shows the, the limitations of uh, the sort of Chinese social credit approach and the hyper-connected ultra-surveillance model that the, the Chinese government has adopted. Right, I mean, I, then of course the question um, at the vi- at the height of uh, the unrest in Hong Kong was whether the PLA would be sent in uh, mm-hmm. to deal with the situation. Now that had all kinds of legal and I mean, financial and business repercussions, and we didn't see that happen as, as some had um, predicted. Um, so I think it's interesting there that again, the Chinese uh, on uh, what they consider their own territory um, had considered a military response, but didn't take that in the end to respond to this very connected uprising. Yeah, so far. And had yeah. to, so far, and yeah, had to find yeah. a different way of dealing with it. Right. Well, I think, you know, this is not necessarily in the public discussion in China, but one of the important historical experiences, and I actually talk about this in the China case study in The Dragons and the Snakes, was the experience of what in the West we call the Tiananmen Square um, massacre, which Chinese typically refer to as the, the, the June incident, right? Um, both of those are misnomers, right? Um, actually, there were uprisings in more than 400 cities in China in 1989, and uh, many, many more places than Tiananmen Square saw a direct military engagement. But one of the things that was really important for Chinese evolution was the mutiny of multiple units within the PLA against the order to use force against Chinese civilians. And the Chinese government actually had to create an entire new force, the People's Armed Police, to take on that domestic uh, policing function, which the army, which by the way, the PLA is the army of the Chinese Communist Party, not the army of the Chinese state, right? Um, Basically said, we're not gonna do this stuff anymore. Um, And a number of officers were purged as a result of that, a large number. Uh, But um, ultimately the regime or the government decided, you know what, yeah, this is a good point. We shouldn't be using the military to suppress internal dissent. Um, One of the big changes in China that's relevant here too is the impact of the one-child policy, which has meant that Chinese military today is the military force with the largest proportion of only children in military history. And that has some really significant impacts on what a Chinese military commander can do with a force that's composed mostly of only sons, right? Whose parents have a very strong interest in not having their one child uh, die in some uh, less than important or less than justified uh, situation. So the notion of 
sort of Korean War style, Chinese human wave attacks and so on, it's a thing of the past. And part of the informationalization of the Chinese military and the focus on all these other things, I think we have to see that as part of a reflection of demographic change where things that used to be open to you as a Chinese commander, you know, 50 years ago, are just not available now because it's a different society. Right. And of course, the Chinese have uh, moved into the area of um, um, not using, well, rather, I would say the Chinese have been reluctant to use the military for various reasons uh, in uh, projecting power more forcefully, uh, looking instead to um, the use of uh, merchant fisher fleets uh, instead in, for example, the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Mm -hmm. So is that also something that you look at, the way that yeah, the Chinese state, so whilst building up its modern uh, military, is also using non-military means? Yeah, so the, the term that was used by the authors of Unrestricted Warfare in 1999, the seminal Chinese document, was um, non-military war operations, which doesn't mean military operations other than war, right? It means pursuing the goals of a military conflict through non-military means. And they talk about financial, uh, computer or cyber. They talk about criminal uh, activity. They talk about economic warfare, uh, trade, um, currency, a whole variety of things which don't kind of fit inside the boundaries of a Western conception of war. And the point that I make in The Dragons and the Snakes is that we run the risk here of what you might call conceptual envelopment, where the Chinese definition of war is so much broader and more comprehensive than the West's definition that two really dangerous things can happen. One, we could be in a conflict with China and Western militaries don't realize it because it's not happening within the, the bounds of sort of traditional Western idea of what's military. The other thing that could happen, which I think is even more dangerous, is Western political leaders could be engaging in things that they think are normal peacetime interaction. For example, a trade war or uh, you know trying to limit Chinese commercial access to 5G systems. And we don't regard those as parts of a war fighting strategy because they don't fit in our definition of war. But for an adversary who adopts what the Chinese call the three warfares doctrine, these things do fit in a war fighting construct. So if you're engaging in something that you think is peaceful and your adversary interprets it as war, you can end up fighting people, you know, accidentally. And I think that's actually the biggest risk with respect to China. I'm firmly of the view that neither China nor the West wants to fight the other. But the risk here is that we accidentally end up fighting each other because we have a uh, competing set of interests and a differing definition of what is what is war. Yeah, a different framework yeah. in which to see it. Yeah. For liberal uh, democracies in the West, um, are they uh, from the get-go in a disadvantage in using, as 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 it sees its enemies using, for instance, trade. Um, um, elections, uh, democratic systems, um, uh, the cyber environment for military purposes or for um, uh, to achieve military-style um, goals. And for liberal democracies, one would think it would be more challenging to, to use these tools because they are supposed to serve interests of national development, etc. So how do you see Western democracies responding to this um, and and what does this um, proliferation of the the the, the, the snakes um, and, and non-state tactics, you know, more asymmetric warfare? What does it mean for uh, the sort of balance of tactics between Western and non-Western adversaries? Yeah. So I would just say I'm not a believer in the sort of Thomas Friedman 
let's be China for a day idea, you know, because um, in the one sense, it's sort of tempting to say, what if we could have a command economy and, and just direct all this stuff and orchestrate uh, all of our elements of national power towards a military goal? Well, the answer to that is, if you could be China for a day, well, you, you wouldn't have those elements of national power because you'd be bankrupt and corrupt and collapsing like the Soviet Union did in 1991, which is the impact of the socialist model. Um, the reason we have all this power in terms of diplomacy and trade and economic vitality and a supportive population is precisely because we are, you know, capitalist democracies that have emphasised, you know, private and individual welfare. So we've got populations that are willing to support. I think the, uh, the balance of tactics question, really what we've shown, and I, I go into some detail on this in the book, is that the way the West has liked to fight wars since about 1991, so high-tech, precision munitions, lots of surveillance, um, focusing on sort of kinetic effects on the battle space, isn't working as well anymore precisely because people have adapted to that and figured out ways around it, we have to rethink. And I think one of the most encouraging things I've seen is the way that NATO has been focusing on domestic political cohesion and resilience of critical systems uh, and saying, actually, there's a military resilience element that has to do with social cohesion and political processes and transparency in your economic and administrative systems and having a population that's on board with what you're trying to do. Uh, and that, of course, in its own right, has become a target for some of our adversaries who are trying to undermine that. So I think there's a key piece of this that is military, but it's not an, it's not an overall military problem, right? The military problem is part of the problem, but it's not the, you can't just wind back the last 20 years by coming up with some geniusly better military idea. It, it, it's not a fundamentally military issue. But building national resilience, of course, and having this whole of societal uh, approach um, is a slow process and a difficult one, of course, in our democratic societies that are pluralistic. Um, so are we moving fast enough? Are we making fast enough progress? I think, I don't know, I, I think we're victims of our own success to some extent, right? In, in the Western powers being so dominant after the end of the Cold War, a, we started putting forward all these norms, which probably seemed like a good idea at the time, but don't look so good now, you know, mm. in terms of things like responsibility to protect, um, the use of drones, uh, the conflation of the international community with the West, right, those sorts of ideas. Uh, and I think that we'll have to rethink some of those. But I think the other area where um, we, you know, we, we need to maybe rethink a little bit is in the relationship between uh, overseas military deployment and domestic circumstance. One of the reasons why we're seeing a rise of populism and a collapse of confidence in elites and political you know, uh, fracturing in the West is precisely because we've been stuck in 20 years of unsuccessful conflict and people don't want to do that anymore. Uh, so I think we've got to uh, see military uh, activity as part of a broader whole rather than as some sort of guaranteed, you know, Western birthright to, to, be, to be the dominant player. I think that's a really good point to jump to our next segment, um, which will focus a little bit more on Afghanistan. Um, so on the 29th of February, uh, the U.S. government and the Taliban signed a deal which includes the withdrawal of all foreign forces from Afghanistan within 14 months. Um, my question to you is, is it realistic to expect the Taliban to sever its links 
Will Al-Qaeda, as it's promised to do, how do you see this developing in the next couple of months, a year going forward, so, short, short answer, term? Short answer is no. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think there are a number of problems with the agreement. One of them is the fact that um, the Taliban do, in fact, have a reasonably close and cooperative relationship with Al-Qaeda. They have had for decades, and there isn't a lot of evidence to suggest that that is changing. As far as Islamic State is concerned, the Taliban certainly do regard Islamic State as an adversary, and Islamic State in some ways is as much of a threat to the Taliban as they are to us or to the Afghan government. Um, but the al-Qaeda is a, a different matter. The second problem I have with this is um, the Afghan government wasn't involved in this negotiation, and it's pretty clear that uh, President Ghani and others in the Afghan government have no real desire or intention to do the things that their agreement calls on them to do, like releasing all these Taliban prisoners, uh, you know, uh, that was, we signed them up for without consultation. Uh, and I think it's extraordinarily important that we don't ignore the government of Afghanistan in the process of negotiating, you know, the future of Afghanistan. That seems like an obvious statement, but I think we're in danger of doing that. The third issue is that the Taliban, I don't think, will be able to hold to the to the ceasefire, partly because they themselves believe they're winning militarily, so they've got a strong incentive to keep fighting, but also because the Taliban's not a single organised, uh, structured force. It's multiple factions, multiple commanders. They operate on their own in many cases, and they loosely follow guidance from Quetta, but they're not, um, you know, they're not sort of lockstep. Um, military organization. So I, 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 what I fear, though, is that President Trump, for domestic U.S. political reasons, is as desperate to get out of Afghanistan now as President Obama was to get out of Iraq, and that the result will end up being somewhat similar, that we pull out, declare victory, and leave, and then in another year or two, everything goes bad again, and we're forced to either decide to re-intervene, as we did in Iraq, or just let it burn. And I think, you know, all the progress that's been made in terms of women's rights and education and public health and economic development in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, for people that haven't been there, um, you may not realize that, you know, it's not what you think it is, that it's actually a dramatically different society now than it was 20 years ago. And it would be extraordinarily tragic to allow all of that to, to fall away. It's incredibly important. Point, good point you make. One of the uh, worries that people have in, in, in Afghanistan, and I, I recently conducted some field research there uh, as part of a project looking at um, urban uh, conflict, but um, a lot of the concerns voiced to me about uh, security and broader political trends there is that the peace a potential peace agreement between the Afghan government uh, and the Taliban, even if in the best case scenario it comes to fruition and uh, they sign a, a peace treaty and an armistice, um, is that the Taliban will be somehow integrated into the political system. And um, so perhaps uh, the conflict and warfare situation will be somehow solved for the moment, but the fundamental problems of the political system and governance of the country are not. Mm -hmm. So. Um, in terms of how um, state institutions in the country are weak and corrupt, uh, several former warlords and current warlords, in a way, um, have leverage over um, policies and, and government decisions. So is there a lesson there, and perhaps from Iraq as well, of perhaps a, um, a 
too much focus being placed over these past 19, 18 years on um, the military warfighting part of the, the campaign and not so much on the building the state institutions to support a more cohesive and organic political improvement to the situation. Yeah, well, I do think that Western forces have overly focused on terrorist cells and insurgent military units in the war on um, in war on the Taliban and al-Qaeda. And what that's meant is that we focused on the symptom rather than the cause of the symptom. And, you know, 10 years ago, myself and a team that I was working with did a study of sources of Taliban funding. And, of course, going in, we thought that the answer was probably going to be opium. Once we did the detailed study, we realized that the biggest source of Taliban funding was actually us, right? All the aid money that we were bringing in and funneling through Afghan contractors, Afghan government, Western contractors, much of that money was ending up in the hands of the Taliban. And in addition, we were creating a dynamic where the Afghan military, the Afghan government, police, and Afghan elites didn't depend on the support of their own population, for survival, they depended on the goodwill of foreigners. So that meant they didn't need to look after their own population, which meant there was increased abuse of local population, which led to resentment, which created space for the Taliban, and then the Taliban were able to run their insurgency on the back of that. And it, you know, to summarize that at one point, we had a goal of extending the reach of the Afghan government, and that was our primary objective. Well, if you're extending the reach of an Afghan government that's corrupt, that people don't like, that's abusing its population, the better you do at that, the worse the situation is going to get because you're actually making it worse. So I think we should have focused much more on building a transparent, non-corrupt, effective Afghan government that didn't rely so heavily on foreign assistance and relied more on its own population. You know, to contrast that with the Taliban, Taliban have been collecting, collecting taxes from the population for, you know, the entire war. In a famous incident, the Mushan Road in Argandab province, they uh, collected money from the population, built a road to help people bring their products to market, and then protected that road, right? Classic example of local governance, you know, your tax dollars at work, right? Meanwhile, we're paying contractors to, from not, not from there to build roads that are getting blown up every five minutes. No one touched the Mushan Road because it was their own road, right? They had ownership over it, so they paid for it. Um, and I think we need to really think about spending less, focusing more on the governance and um, civilian capability elements and treating the military piece of the campaign as like sort of keeping the flies off, you know, while you, while you focus rather than um, chasing the flies and in so doing, you know, damaging the, uh, the population you're trying to work with. So what do you think the... Um role of China could be here um, if the U.S. does withdraw, if um, uh, if China, well, I mean, China has currently said that it wants to play a role as a mediator, a supporter, a convener. Um, how, what do you think they have to offer? Will they be more successful? Or is it just a completely different role than the U.S. Well, will have I played? Think China has the possibility to play an extraordinarily positive role in Afghanistan. Um, China already has very significant economic commitments in Afghanistan. It's got a very close relationship with Pakistan. One of the problems in Afghanistan has been that Pakistan has been very dependent on continued instability in Afghanistan because it's worried that it will be abandoned uh, by the West if 
the West no longer needs Pakistan to fight the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and it will then be at the mercy of India in a regional sense. Well, the closer the Pakistanis are with the Chinese, the less they have to worry about that, the less um, worry they should have about stable peace in Afghanistan, and therefore potentially it could redress that dynamic that we've seen for the last um, you know, 20 years in the conflict. Uh, the other thing I think is the, the fact that the Belt and Road Initiative and the Chinese investment in Pakistan, the Port of Guada, Karakoram Highway, the various different um, economic and infrastructure projects that China is pursuing, give the Chinese an extraordinarily strong um, interest in a stable Afghanistan and a stable Pakistan mm -hmm. as well. Uh, China also has the great advantage that unlike the Russians and unlike us, they haven't invaded and conquered and occupied Afghanistan, right? So they're a little more, their hands are cleaner in terms of that activity. I do hope that China will choose to play that kind of um, constructive role. I do also think Western powers have to create space for China to do that and not see it necessarily as a competition, but as a collaboration or cooperation towards stabilizing, uh, you know, this very destructive country. I mean, for China, this isn't just an opportunity, right? <laughs> it's also very much about uh, creating a stable Afghanistan, which they hope will be, um, which they think is important to creating a peaceful and stable um, Western Chinese region, yeah. uh, Western region in China, um, with particular um, regard to um, their concerns over the East Turkestan Islamic movement mm -hmm. and um, safe spaces for them yeah. in unstable regions. That's true. And I think um, Russia has a key role here also, right? For very much the same reason, Russia's worried about its southern flank in the same way that the Chinese are worried about Western China. Uh, so I think, you know, this is one of these times where with a bit of creative thinking, uh, lots of players, including actually the Taliban, right? Have an interest in ending the war uh, and stabilizing the, the operating environment. The spoilers out there are people like Islamic State. Um, but, you know, Islamic State's relatively small. It is present in a very few number of districts in, uh, in Afghanistan. It's actually Pakistani in origin. Um, so I think there's spoilers out there, but treating, you know, Pakistan as a spoiler or China as a spoiler is misunderstanding everybody's interests. Everyone has a, ro a role to play in stabilizing the region. Do you think these um, non-Western um, state actors that are, closer to the Afghanistan uh, situation and theater, um, that they may play a positive role in some of these gaps that we identify in the Western approach, such as governance, infrastructure, because they are closer to the conflict, perhaps in building a more stable and investing more on um, economic infrastructure, political institutions, and stabilizing the, the gaps that you know have not had so much to do with the military part of the conflict. Yeah, look, I think that, um, and you know, this isn't the first time that the international community has brokered a peace deal in Afghanistan, right? The UN did that at the end of the Russian occupation. And if you recall, what led to the collapse of that original Afghan peace deal in 1992 and the civil war that followed was partly the collapse of the Soviet Union and therefore the removal of a lot of support for the Najibullah government, which led to uh, them collapsing. But it was also the fact that the UN, having brokered that deal, then didn't stick around to ensure that it actually um, worked and didn't have the leverage to remain engaged and intervene when 
the Mujahideen factions began to squabble amongst each other, which led to the civil war. Part of the issue here is if you have global institutions like the UN, or you have the, a global superpower like the United States, coming up with solutions unilaterally that don't involve local players, then no one that lives in the neighborhood is gonna stick around to be engaged and have a strong interest in making it work. So having Iran, Russia, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, China, Pakistan, India, you know, regional players heavily involved in the process and having the Afghan government own that process, I think is fundamental because then uh, people won't just leave the region to hang because they live there, you know. I think that's, you know, it may, it may seem frustrating to do this kind of multilateral diplomacy and work towards a solution, um, but actually there's, there's really no substitute for that. So now we come to the part in which we explore uh, with our guest, David, in this case, a little bit more about his career and personal interests. So I think that these are the easy questions of the podcast. Uh, David seems to think otherwise, given his um, uh, look right now. But let's, let's, let's go for it. So, um, uh, David, I, I've seen a few places you've been described as a warrior scholar. I'm not sure how comfortable you are with this definition, but how did you uh, move from being a warrior to being a warrior scholar, writing books and helping armed forces to think about counterinsurgency? Well, I, so I came up in the Australian Army. I was an infantry officer and I spent a lot of the 1990s in things like peacekeeping and um, uh, irregular conflict, as we call it. In that time frame, I did my PhD in political anthropology, which I know a British audience will understand differently from an American audience, not cultural anthropology, right? Focusing on um, power systems in non-state groups, in villages and uh, uh, social organizations affected by conflict. And as part of that in the 1990s, I became pretty well acquainted with the jihadist groups in Indonesia. And I wish I could say that I had some premonition that it would be useful. Uh, I didn't, I was just interested in it and I speak the language and I um, like people there and had a lot of time um, living with people and working with them. Uh, then suddenly after 9-11, there was a dearth of people that actually knew anything about these groups. And I was plucked out of the army into a role uh, advising uh, counterterrorism activity after 9-11. Um, and I wrote a paper after a few years talking about how the war in Iraq was killing us, right? That we had created this dynamic where um, we were creating what I later came to call accidental guerrillas, right, who were just fighting us because we were in their country rather than because they had any particular animus in the West. Um, and as, as a result of that, I got drawn into helping the US rework its counterinsurgency theory. Uh, I ended up advising General David Petraeus in Iraq. Um, in fact, I didn't advise him. He didn't need my advice. He was an expert in this stuff himself. My job was to work with units that were deployed in Iraq, including American coalition and also Iraqi organizations to help them adapt to this new model and then subsequently working with the Sahwa, the awakening of the Iraqi tribes against Al-Qaeda. Um, and so I, that's how I sort of got into it. I call myself a professional soldier but an accidental scholar, right? I didn't sort of really get into this stuff deliberately. It just sort of happened around me and I uh, ended up putting a few things down on paper because, you know, the most important skill you learn uh, doing ethnography is to take good notes. Uh, so I've tried to sort of, in the books I write, to focus on what you really can observe at first hand in the field and try to go sort of with a bottom-up aggregative approach to understanding what's actually going on. 
And in terms of um, the conventional wisdom in your field, what is the one thing that frustrates you whenever you hear it or that you think people get completely wrong? Well, so I, if, if we define my field as counterinsurgency, sure. um, I think the one thing that people really frequently get wrong is un understanding it as primarily a military problem rather than primarily a civilian problem. Um, back in the 1950s and 1960s, we used to talk about counter-guerrilla operations as a subset of counterinsurgency. So countering an insurgency is a whole of government activity that's mostly about local level civilian officials and the rule of law and economic development and administrative efficiency and all these things. And then one subset of that is the military campaign against the military element of an insurgency. Now, most of the structure of an insurgency is not military. Only about 2% of the people involved in an insurgency actually pick up weapons and fight. For some reason, after 9-11, we suddenly began to think that this was all the military's problem. Mm -hmm. And we s tried to stick it to the armed forces to do things like digging wells and um, doing agricultural projects and training administrators and all that stuff. And that's not what the military's for. Um, not only that, you run the risk of militarizing things that shouldn't be militarized. Uh, and you also end up with um, pretty bad um, outcomes, right? Because military officers, you know, tank command, there was one period when, <laughs> to use just one example, and they got this individual was a wonderful guy, but one of the people commanding one of the provincial reconstruction teams in eastern Afghanistan in the 2010s was a US nuclear submarine commander from the US Navy. And he turned out to actually be a really good PRT commander. But in what world does it make sense to have someone with that background thrown into the deep end, literally, to figure out you know um, this stuff on the fly? So I think focusing on civilian capability, local level administrative activity, and just treating the military as a way of protecting that civilian system and really no more than that, that really is the way to go. And I think that leads to something that in the US we call unconventional warfare and foreign internal defense. So much lighter footprint, small scale activity rather than this sort of 200,000 Western troops coming into Afghanistan and trying to sort of bring it into the 21st century by force of arms. I think that's probably the biggest uh, you know, thing that people need to rediscover in, in thinking about this kind of conflict. Well, as a member of the conflict security development team here at the ISS, I only hope that uh, policymakers and experts alike uh, out there are, uh, are paying attention to this. David, thank you so much for joining us today. And to our listeners, please subscribe to Sound Strategic for more in-depth discussions just like this. And to keep up to date with the latest trends in international security and armed conflicts, remember to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. See you all next time. <laughs>